The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about women in French imperialism. Oh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, were French women willing participants or collateral damage in imperialism? And we have Dr. Jack Gronow with us to talk about it. Okay. Um, Tell me about Dr. Jack Gronow. Well, he is a professor at Northeastern University. Very cool. So just down in Boston and cozying up with us in these winter months because <laughs> it is cold in New England yes, these days. Yes, lots of snow. But okay. he is an expert on French imperialism, and in particular, he's fascinated by um, the women who were, were in this period because women sometimes are overlooked. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just blew me away with the fact. But, Brooke, the imperial era. I know. I was going to pause you. Can we explain what that is? Sure. So imperialism is when a country expands their influence politically, militarily, economically, etc. Expansion. Expansion, yes. Um, Typically, they're taking over either industries or land owned by other people. Okay. So, like, building an empire. Building an empire. And, yeah, a good, like, you know, the classic example would be, like, the English, um, you know, the the sun never sets on the English empire, that sort of thing. Ah, yes. But Americans were sort of, like, sneaky imperialists where we did <laughs> we did have a period um in the late 1800 well native americans would say like forever but <laughs> there's a period Accurate. that is considered our imperial era where we expanded borders beyond just the west and right. into you know the philippines and hawaii and we talked about that on our episode on hawaii but we continued expanding our influence well beyond yeah. that period but our econ- our influence was more political and economic rather right. than like taking Overlord. over land yeah. yeah and so like a good example of american imperialism you could argue this is an argument um <laughs> is that we have military bases all over the world right right like imagine if china had a military base like right down the road like no like who would allow that yeah <laughs> It is very shocking every time people are like, oh, yeah, no, we're going to Okinawa, which is like a huge military base. And yeah. you're just like, 
How are they cool with that? Yeah, so many Americans on. Well, Japan's sort of a different issue because <laughs> they don't have their own military to defend themselves. This but, is true. But yeah, so French imperialism is really part of the French Republic. And then there's several periods of it. There's late imperialism. Um, and he's going to talk about women in, in different parts of, of that. Okay. Um, but women are not, they're overlooked in topics related to imperialism because so much of it has to do with the military leaders, the president, yeah, and, you know, the, the king or whatever, and, and their decision. And what's interesting, though, is like as you expand into those places, women are going with those people, like their wives right. and whatever. And so women are definitely like part of it and i love his question you know are they willing participants are they like yeah, they on board with the imperial yeah. mission or are they just sort of like collateral damage and this period of time that we're talking about for france is are they still a monarchy or they have a president so well that's a great question <laughs> france so we're really talking about like 1800 and he would he says that you know it could go all the way up to like post-World War II. Okay. But France has several different types of revolutions in right. that time. And so different, you know, different, okay. different. Um, like who's in charge Who's is different. in charge might shift over time, but the idea of let's expand and create this strong France, right? Like that yeah. has, that doesn't really shift. Viva la France. Yes. That was excellent. Thank you. And I took French course, in high school. The French people listening are probably like, ew. Ew. Ew, Brock. <laughs> Leno. <laughs> I did talk with, with um, Dr. Gronau about our bad French language skills. So, oh, minor, although he is better brutal. than me. My French is probably better than my Spanish, which I took way more years of. But. <laughs> Um, yeah, definitely sound like an American trying out a, a shoe that doesn't fit. Bonjour now. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so I'm so excited to have Dr. Gronau with us today. And why don't we have him introduce himself? Hi, my name is Jack Gronau, and I'm a university lecturer at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. I want to first thank you, Kelsey, for asking me to be a contributor to the Remedial History Project. Uh, this kind of curriculum expansion and development is such important work, and there's still so much work that needs to be done when it comes to making the study of history and the teaching of history from elementary school right up through undergraduate a more inclusive field that reflects the past experiences and actions and ideas of all people. Uh, so women in particular, you know, being half or even more of the population then and now are overdue for equitable representation in mainstream history. So this project is a great step in the right direction. Like I first said, I'm currently a lecturer at Northeastern, where I'm teaching several uh, undergraduate courses in European and world history, one of which is race, gender, and medicine that I'm developing for next semester. But I've been at Northeastern for quite some time, actually, because it's where I very recently completed my PhD in history as well. Uh, I defended in August 2021. My project uh, was French Women's Civil Society Activism, Civic and Political Struggles in Imperial France, 1897 to 1942. That's always how you know it's a dissertation and not a book because the subtitle is so long, but you know, we're getting there. Uh, it's one of my current projects I'm working on. My research centers on the French Empire during the Third Republic and how French women's civil society organizations participated in the Imperial Project, both in the colonies and the metropole. 
and how the empire influenced their discourse and activities. But I've been interested in and have studied many different points in history that all kind of culminated in my current research interests and field of study. Since high school, I knew you know I wanted to study and teach history. My love for history was part, you know, this innate curiosity and interest in it, but it was also certainly fostered by a series of great teachers I had as well. And so as an undergrad, I declared, you know, secondary education in history, and I began to focus primarily on World War II Europe and specifically Nazi Germany. But I took an upper level seminar on modern France, and I think this is really what planted the seed for some of my future studies. When I entered Northeastern's PhD program sometime later, you know, I already knew I wanted my research to center on the Francophone world. The program at Northeastern really fosters, a, you know, a strong world history angle too. So when combined with my growing interest in women and gender studies, uh, you know, this kind of brought these different pieces of the puzzle together for me. I read Antoinette Burton's Burdens of History my, my first year, and in that book she analyzes how British feminists used the plight of the colonized Indian woman to validate their own feminist agenda with demands for equality in the metropole and participation in the empire. And this early reading is what really kind of sparked this line of inquiry for me with this project, because I looked around and thought, you know, France is the second largest world empire during this period in the mid-19th through early 20th century, but there's been really no focus on the role of French women, you know, aside from what's been studied on early, you know, Catholic missionary work or, you know, the singular lives of individual women. So I thought if British women, feminists and others had such an outsized role in the British imperial project, and that this is something that had been well-documented amongst historians and had really turned into a, a, a burgeoning field. You know, British women as these kind of agents of colonialism, you know, what were French women doing? Was it similar or different? And, you know, why might this difference uh, be the case? So I think you have to start by unpacking the historical significance of this period in history, not only for France, but globally. So this period is the late 19th century through roughly World War II. In many ways, you can think about it as almost the entirety of the French Third Republic, which was from 1870 to 1940. This is the period of new imperialism, characterized by heightened colonial expansion of European powers, as well as the entry of the U.S. and Japan into this kind of race for empire building. This is also in the throes of massive industrialization and urbanization, the expansion of the global economy and markets. This is also the birth of kind of a modern consumer culture, uh, which was really unparalleled in France's modern history. You know, this rise in consumerism, whether it was, you know, the Bon Marché, you know, these kind of cathedrals of consumption, as Colin Jones has kind of called them, or cafes or restaurants or nightclubs, you know, this was a really significant development and impacted the lives of everyday men and women pretty significantly, particularly, you know, bourgeois French women of kind of the middle and upper class 
this also came to symbolize a kind of deviation from traditional gender norms as well, this kind of blurring of the boundaries of public and private between races and social classes and genders. So this was, you know, a really unique time in in France as well as across Europe as well, and particularly in some of the larger, you know, urban areas where you see the birth of kind of this modern cosmopolitanism. But this is also a period that encompasses the First World War, you know, where we see the collapse of four major empires and the redrawing of national boundaries and borders, not to mention unprecedented levels of violence and destruction and the emergence of of chemical warfare. And then consequently, you know, the interwar period, which was marked by you know, the rise of communism following the Russian Revolution, as well as the rise of fascism and this kind of rampant ultranationalism. You also have the Great Depression beginning in 1929, and you also have the marked increase of independence movements in the overseas colonial territories of the British and French Empire as well. In France, in particular, this period from 1897 through, you know, 1942 was one of tremendous political, social, and economic change, you know, with the French Empire reaching its territorial height. And this period is also synonymous with the multifaceted French feminist movement as well. Individuals and organizations began to conceptualize very different interpretations of what they believed feminism was and what its goal should be. Feminism in the Third Republic, you know, it's often been characterized as, you know, this really disjointed movement of many organizations and a spectrum of identities and ideologies and activities, and in many ways it was. But out of this, you know, milieu emerged the dominant form of French feminism, which was bourgeois Republican feminism. The rhetoric of these feminists centered on, you know, principles stemming from the Enlightenment, from the French Revolution, you know, these kinds of Rousseauist conceptions of good government and natural rights, French Republican ideas of justice and democracy and equality. And, you know, women began to use a lot of these ideas to create pragmatic political arguments that positioned, you know, their increased enfranchisement alongside, you know, these kind of sweeping contributions to French society that they were making. And so bourgeois Republican feminists who made up really the majority of feminists in France, you know, throughout the entirety of the Third Republic, really strongly identified with their position as French women in French society you know, pursuing civil and political rights in this kind of framework of the secular French nation state. But specific notions of gender were also really important and profoundly influenced their feminist discourse as well. You know, it's during this period where gender was constructed as, you know, this complementary, you know, part of a binary relationship between men and women, where, you know, difference or the idea of difference was seen as the cornerstone that situated men and women in these kind of separate spheres of public and private. 
so bourgeois Republican feminists really supported, you know, the sexual division of labor at home and in society, and they often emphasized, you know, what they called kind of quote, you know, the special nature of women, you know, these kinds of um, qualities that they would attribute to, you know, women's maternal instincts and mothering and nurturing, um, things of that nature. So this was the predominant feminist discourse of the Third Republic, and it really mirrored the period's sociocultural gender framework as well. Alongside the expansion of the French feminist movement was also this massive mobilization of French laywomen into faith-based organizations that were aimed at social and religious reform. World War I ushered in a tremendous upsurge of women's social movements, which even though they had begun decades earlier, really, really took off uh, following World War I, and nowhere was this more apparent than amongst Catholic women. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. (laughs) I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, We are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10-minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs, at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) But they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, No, very (laughs) funny. But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Um, So their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, And they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Any, every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. Yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, which is really cool. So definitely if you're interested in those, yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. So in the years following the war, France ushered in a, you know, variety of socioeconomic policies that would create the foundation for the modern welfare state. And in its efforts to, you know, recover from the economic and social and even corporal effects of the war, France began to embark on policy provisions and and public debates that really centered on the social role of French women, Uh, from women's right to work and protective labor legislation to draconian measures that restricted birth control access and even outlawed abortion. So this period 
I think it's it's important to really underscore a lot of the moving parts that are taking place both you know domestically in France as well as globally because for French women you know especially the interwar period really marks a a watershed moment where women are beginning to receive kind of a larger admittance to the political sphere and women's civil societies more generally are also being largely politicized because of the general, you know, socio-political environment in France as well as throughout Europe. And so it's in this period that I examine these three women's civil society organizations. The first being the French Women's Colonial Emigration Society, the second being the Civic and Social Women's Union, which was a conservative social Catholic association that was created following World War I in 1925. And the third is the Union for French Women's Suffrage, which was an explicitly bourgeois Republican feminist organization. And all three of these organizations are very different, uh, but they're woven together by their shared struggle for French women's civil and or political rights, um, sometimes both of these things as well as their attempt to carve out a unique space for women within the sociocultural and political sphere of the Third Republic and its empire. So I use gender as kind of, you know, the primary analytic framework here to relocate the history of French women's civil society organizations in this kind of imperial context, which is really something that is kind of pretty unique to uh, my project, I think, because this is really not something that has often been done to kind of blend these two um, these two fields that are typically studied kind of within within silos of one another. But I think it's necessary to to do this um, to kind of frame these groups in an imperial context in order to better understand how the relationships between French women, and imperial culture, as well as colonialism, kind of influenced and interacted with one another. You know, there was this kind of experience of empire that permeated French women in both the metropole and in the colonies, uh, but in very unique ways that were really um, also influenced by, you know, the sociocultural and political landscape of the space that they were living in whether it was a settler colonial environment in the French Maghreb um, or whether it was in metropolitan France. So digging a little bit deeper into, uh, you know, the activities uh, and mission of these various organizations, uh, the first one, you know, being the Women's Colonial Immigration Society, uh, this was established in 1897, operated through, you know, roughly 1911, and I chose this society because one, I mean, it's it's only one of two to appear in France, even during its brief years of activity, but also because of the different role um, that this organization really took on. You know, my examination, I think, kind of complicates our understanding of the organization. It really looks into a lot of the gendered rhetoric that male colonialists used here, where they really framed this as this kind of matrimonial agency, really, um, 
helping to assist the immigration of French women of a certain kind of social class to settler colonies to marry and have children with French men, which, of course, at this time um, was really part of a kind of broader pronatalist movement that was that was going on that really conceptualized, you know, the empire as a, this kind of population reservoir for the nation. Um, and that, you know, a lot of this was also driven by these very, you know, racist concerns of what was known then as, you know, this quote unquote racial degeneration of, you know, French male settlers having children with indigenous women and having mixed race uh, offspring and, you know, producing in the minds of many French, you know, politicians and, uh, and government officials, you know, kind of the wrong kinds of, um, of, of French people, you know, were, were reproducing. And so sending, you know, middle-class French women to the colonies was a, seen as a way to kind of write this, this trend. But I also, you know, in looking at the society, focus on the leadership of the secretary general, uh, Marie-Josephine Pigau, and, you know, this kind of understated feminist discourse that she created around the society. Um, you know, she positioned the emigration society as a vehicle, really, for women's social mobility, as kind of a means that they could use to provide them with employment, as well as kind of life opportunities within the colonies. And that also in you know, highlighting kind of the way in which under her leadership, she sought to kind of reposition the activities of this society. I also think it demonstrates how male colonialists really were using uh, women's colonial immigration for the purposes of political arguments, basing it really on this largely fictional narrative of kind of this, you know, crisis of gender roles, you know, quote unquote, and there not being enough jobs to go around for, you know, all of these, you know, middle class women that had were now receiving an education and entering the workforce and, you know, all of these very classist and inherently uh, patriarchal misogynistic arguments that were being made. The second group that I focus on the civic and social uh, women's union, uh, which was the conservative Catholic union, is really special in the sense that there have been, you know, a number of historians that have, have focused on this group who is actually has, has changed over time, but it's still, you know, some semblance of this organization is still uh, active today. You know, they've focused on this group and their activities, you know, all throughout France. But it's also noteworthy that this group really created this decentralized network that, you know, set up branches across the French Empire. You know, uh, six of their 57 groups, you know, by 1942 were stationed overseas. And this is something that has really been overlooked in, you know, the history of this organization. You know, the group created two newspapers, you know, one that was in metropolitan France and another that was in French Algeria. And so, you know, placing 
you know, the Catholic Union within this kind of imperial context, you know, illuminates this kind of secondary, lesser known agenda of the organization that really has escaped the attention of a lot of scholars. And this is a kind of, you know, feminine civilizing mission that was aimed at both European settlers and indigenous women in French overseas territories. And these imperial activities, you know, included thousands of members across branches that were established in Morocco, Tunisia, Madagascar, and most significantly in French Algeria. So two themes emerge from the organization's colonial program. The first is a focused effort on raising the living standards for French settler women and fostering a sense within them that they were conduits of French civilization who needed to build mutual relationships with indigenous women there for, you know, quote, the good of the empire and the future of France. But the Catholic Union, their colonial program um, for French settler women also established social welfare and education programs, you know, such as courses in childcare and sewing, setting up elderly rest homes, youth centers, summer camps. So where settler populations were particularly substantial, uh, which was in the French Maghreb, particularly in Algeria, these colonial groups created, you know, libraries and community centers, setting up em- employment assistance for settler women, all kinds of different activities many of which mirror what was happening in the metropole. Um, But for whatever reason, no one has really kind of looked at the ways in which these groups kind of extended those social uh, missions that they were doing in, um, in the metropole to kind of the colonial space. The second theme that emerges is a concern for indigenous women and girls, often displayed in members' you know, concerted efforts to learn and understand local indigenous culture and language, which was often followed by these kinds of social and educational initiatives that would benefit these women and their communities. Issues of concern often centered on living standards, on the education of young girls, on child care, on maternal aid. And, you know, the rhetoric and the initiatives that developed were really rooted in this commitment to the imperial civilizing mission and kind of colonial extension of the metropole's flourishing social Catholicism movement. But it's important to point out that the French colonial policy of, you know, the civilizing mission, you know, Mission Civilisatrice, rested on notions of the superiority of French civilization, of the kind of perfectibility of humankind and the right and duty of France to, as it saw it, remake primitive cultures, you know, along lines inspired by the cultural, political, and economic development of France. So they are these very problematic, racist, Eurocentric notions that were guiding French colonial policy during this period that many French women really went along with and used as an opportunity through these civil society organizations to kind of create new opportunities for white European women, you know, not all of which was inherently, you know, women didn't necessarily support these things for, you know, it wasn't always an inherently, for inherently um, negative purposes. White French women that were participating in the civil societies weren't necessarily co-opting and participating in the imperial project for, it wasn't always these inherently negative 
intentions, but it is important to to note because I think this is also a big part of the history that is lost in the fact that women have have often not been included in discussions over empire building during this period is the fact that they they did blend notions of a civilizing mission with their own kind of practices that sought you know greater enfranchisement and opportunity and arab muslim women particularly in algeria continued to play a vital role in french colonial projects and in the work of both the catholic union as well as the french women's union for suffrage um in both of those cases even for different for different purposes they were often seen as key to the success of the French civilizing mission and to the maintenance of uh, colonial order and good relations between the settler community and the indigenous community. And lastly, you know, the third distinct group is the French Union for Women's Suffrage, which was, again, you know, this overtly feminist organization created with the explicit purpose of working towards achieving female suffrage. They had a very important presence throughout the French Maghreb during the 1930s interwar period. Even if many of their efforts were unsuccessful, the fact that there was this kind of attempt made to mobilize uh, French women, either sending members from the Union from the Metropole to be active in the French Maghreb or organizing those women who were already living in the area, but attempting to both incorporate French women in the, you know, the larger feminist movement for white French women to achieve suffrage and greater, you know, civil and political rights, but also in using indigenous women as a part of that program as well, much in the same way that British feminists used Indian women to argue for greater enfranchisement as well. Highlighting the, you know, the work of French women within the colonial order, uh, specifically in, in Algeria, also, you know, kind of reinforces the fact that European settler women position the delivery of social services to indigenous women as fulfillment of their role as, as French civilizers, as these kind of conduits of the civilizing mission, which again is an important aspect of empire building that is often overlooked in in the history. So for far too long, histories of French colonialism and women's civil society organizations, you know, they've been studied in silos, kind of as I've said, you know, with French feminist studies relegated to the metropole. But I think these three unique civil society groups with their, you know, varying, you know, missions and beliefs and goals that were really influenced by colonialism and the specter of empire as well, demonstrate how central notions of womanhood were within both metropolitan France and its colonies, and as well as how many women co-opted Mission Civilisatrice as a means for arguing for greater civil and political uh, liberties for French women at home and throughout the empire, as well as using it as an opportunity to participate 
in you know this very patriotic way participating in kind of building a stronger France, which I think also speaks to kind of the very complicated ways that that identity and and gender and colonialism and all of these different concepts and ideas kind of play off of each other. But ultimately, I think, you know, French women and their respective organizations had a complex relationship with the French Empire, specifically in the colonial Maghreb. And I think analyzing French women's participation in the imperial project through a kind of gender and settler colonial lens reveals a lot of these long ignored dimensions of civil society organizations in Third Republic France, and that it establishes kind of the greater potential for the field for further investment, but also underscores kind of these long ignored aspects of history during this period that has often overlooked the various ways European women, and in this case, French women, contributed to empire building to the building of settler colonies in these overseas territories, and how oftentimes the imperial project was then co-opted by these organizations to argue for greater civic and political rights and liberties back home as well. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much for your time and energy. I learned so much from you in that, and I kept thinking about all of these connections to things that I teach, whether it be the French Revolution or, you know, other forms of imperialism from different countries. And I am just in awe of of your research. This is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. I would love to know a little bit. You talked about how these women from France had this civilization mission that could be seen in some ways as kind, <laughs> but they also used that their role in civil- civilizing to push their own enfranchisement at, back home. And I would love if you could just expand on that idea a little bit, because I, I see that in other cultures around the world as well. Um, and it's such an interesting moment for women's history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the civilizing mission at least in kind of the French case, it certainly kind of takes on different different forms within like British imperialism and American imperialism. I think it's often in those cases framed as kind of the white man's burden with Rudyard Kipling's poem or seen as kind of like the three C's of like Christianity, commerce, and civilization. But in the French case, it's very much kind of based in Republican ideology and the notion that the French kind of invented, if you will, civilization, and that it's something that can be taught and kind of sculpted through language and culture and educations and raising standards of living for people. And this certainly kind of changed and shifted over time. But I think during this period of new imperialism, French women are like kind of adopting and using this ideology as a means to kind of create whether it's like greater economic or social opportunity for themselves, or in efforts to kind of extend their efforts at philanthropy and social welfare programs. So kind of like extending a lot of the social and philanthropic work that they were doing in France, extending that to the colonies, especially, you know, French Algeria. And then also the women's suffrage movement, French feminists kind of 
and disagreeing as well, those that were living in French Algeria versus those that were in the metropole of how that would kind of play out, but certainly kind of using their role in the colonies and the spread of civilization to argue for their rights for greater, you know, political, political and civil rights in France. I love the question that you shared with me, French women, willing participants or collateral damage? And (laughs) if I had to pose that question to you, what would be your answer? (laughs) Yeah, I would say it's a, it's a both and that they were certainly willing participants in the sense that they often embodied and sought to carry out the civilizing mission, whether it was through their work with colonial administrators in the colonies or these various kinds of social welfare programs that were directed at indigenous communities. A lot of that was in the name of spreading French culture and civilization and French language. So education was used as a big tool to kind of spread the civilizing mission. But also they were kind of collateral damage in the sense that oftentimes their their attempts and activities were thwarted because they were confined by whether it was kind of the settler colonial environment or kind of their place as white European middle upper class women. They were confined to these very like gendered and raced expectations where especially in the settler colonial setting, they were expected to kind of live and breathe and be the embodiment of civilization. So it was often them that were responsible for continuing to maintain and reinforce spatial and physical boundaries between white settlers and indigenous people of color. And this was something that hampered their ability oftentimes to be able to make a lot of like meaningful, impactful change for both French settler women as well as indigenous women. And this is certainly the case for the expansion of, you know, the suffrage movement and the colonies in particular. I love that idea of having to be the embodiment of civilization too. Like what incredible <laughs> pressure. Um, but we yeah, no big deal. <laughs> the way that, you know, women are used as symbols, whether it be Lady Liberty or Lady Justice or Manifest Destiny, right? Like those, those sort of images of, of women's bodies, right? Representing these huge ideals are everywhere. So I think that's such a meaningful thing to convey and also question with with students. So I I'm I love that. I love this whole topic because it's <laughs> it touches and crosses so much of what we do as educators. I'm curious, you know, given that this is your research and your background, you're probably more familiar with how to find these tools than maybe, you know, a K to 12 educator is. So how how would you, where would you direct them to find things that they could have their students look at or read to more deeply understand the topic? Yeah. So when it comes to primary sources, a topic like this is somewhat limited by folks' ability to read French. So if that is something that teachers have in their wheelhouse, my biggest suggestion would be to take a look at BNF, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. That is kind of the French National Library where they have a system called Gallica. And through that system are just thousands of digitized documents, photographs. One of the things that I found most useful in my research is the the newspapers that have been digitized. They have specifically a section on kind of women's 
you know, more like cultural, like socialite type papers, but also specifically feminist press. And this is digitized and broken out by year. It's searchable by like keywords and stuff through PDF. It's free, which is huge. You know, with technology, you can use Google Translator to kind of get at pieces of it as well. So if that's something that folks kind of have in their wheelhouse, that's definitely a great tool to utilize a lot of those press. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, and you also have the French teacher down the hall. You can always utilize them. I'm sure they would love to support. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Yes. (laughs) They always get so excited whenever I'm like, oh, I'm talking about France today. They're always like, (laughs) woohoo. C'est bon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I barely speak French, but I would always go in and fake it and all the you know, middle schoolers or whoever was in there at the time would be very impressed. And I was really grateful that they were impressed because no one else would be. (laughs) Ditto. That's, that's how, that's how I feel oftentimes too. So no worries. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much for your time and research. This is so cool. And I can't wait for more people to teach a more inclusive imperialism history. And I love just this. There's so many layers of race and class and colonialism, you know, so many things that that can be investigated with this. And I can't, I can't wait for people to do it better. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. I think this period too, like the period of new imperialism um, is something that is often not, not taught in secondary education. And I think it provides a lot of opportunity to get at not only the role of women, but to look at it from this kind of intersectional perspective and get at all of these issues of race and class and colonialism um, and ethnicity and reshape the narrative because empire building is often seen as this very masculine endeavor. And especially during the new imperialism era, that is certainly not the case. So I think there's a lot of potential here. Yeah. And it's, you know, I love that you brought up the masculine thing because it's a way that white women have sort of passed the blame to to white men and, (laughs) and hidden. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Face that too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.